Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Karen Curry-Parker. She's the host of Quantum Revolution Podcast. She's very gracious. She had me on her podcast earlier this week. So now it's my turn to speak to her. Countless people as I have, and I, I bet she's going to have some really interesting insights as to who she's spoken to. So, Karen, welcome. Thank you, Rich. Excited to be here and to continue our conversation. Yeah, tell me about your background. How did you first think about podcasting and what got you into it? Oh, God. Okay. Well, so I'm old, and I uh, started off my journey a long time ago, actually, as a nurse and a journalist. I majored in both because I couldn't pick one. And so from the very beginning, my entire professional career has sort of been juxtaposed between nursing and journalism. The juxtaposition sort of got louder and louder as I started working as a nurse, which I only did for six months because technically I can't take orders from other people. So that was not really good for being a nurse. And at the time when I started working as a nurse, it was a time when the public healthcare system was really overwhelmed as it continues to be today. And at that time, we I was actually working for the Catholic diocese and there was a huge swelling of women walking from El Salvador to give birth in America because their husbands had been intellectuals who had been murdered by the government at that time. And they were trying to get free and give birth in a safe place with their babies. So the Catholic diocese was offering them refuge in the basement of the church. And I was delivering babies in the basement, which, you know, basically started me looking at the, what are we doing in the healthcare system for women in general, particularly in the context of how are we helping women give birth? And I really started to see that 
we were medicalizing what is a, a pretty healthy, normal process in the lifespan of a woman when, when you supervise them carefully. And so I started my very first sort of quote unquote alternative practice as a midwife in Texas. Um, and that was a little bit before it was trendy. Now, I'm not saying it's trendy. I actually think it's a great trend that we see so much home birth and, and a sort of return to natural birthing. But that was kind of the beginning of my career of serving as a source of information on the leading edge of health and healthcare. And of course, over the years, that was, I did the math the other day, and I think it was 34 years ago. But, uh, you know, since then, of course, healthcare is a system, as, as you know, is under a lot of, I think, in a state of crisis that is needing to come up with new answers and new insights and new information. And mm -hmm. it has always been my passion to explore how do I better inform people about how to make conscious choices that give them a greater state of well-being. A quick question here. What, what was it? How many babies do you think you helped deliver? And what was oh the experience gosh. like? You know, I don't know. I think about that a lot. I oftentimes think, you know, what if I, if I'm accidentally encountering somebody who I helped birth, um, you know, I have delivered a lot of babies. We'll call We'll just say that. Yeah. I don't know. That's a great question. I should probably sit with that and figure it out someday, but you know, it, the thing about babies and is usually they come in clusters. Usually that means you as the midwife are like three, four or five days out with sleep without sleep rather. And so it all becomes a beautiful blur usually. So Oh, wow. Is there anything you remember from that experience that, that jumps out at you or that has stayed with you throughout the years? I think what really has stood out to me, you know, and I don't want to make this political because I don't, I don't think it's a political conversation. This is me talking as a mother, you know, the strength and the courage that these women exhibited, you know, literally they walked from El Salvador up to America as best as they could, or, you know, hitched buses here and there and just in bearing witness to that maternal drive to do whatever you need to do to protect your child, it was a pretty, I mean, I'm tearing up as I talk about it. I mean, it's a pretty moving force and it's a pretty powerful force of energy. And I was deeply humbled by the courage that I witnessed those years, uh, uh, very frequently deeply humbled by the courage. Yeah, as a man, I would be terrified to give birth in general, but to, to be pregnant and to walk through danger and do that, that is pretty amazing. Okay, well, if you don't mind, continue on. Um... So the journey continued where, you know, I moved quickly from midwifery to other things because I ended up having my own children and those two careers weren't very compatible. And when I gave birth to my third son, he had a very severe reaction to a vaccination at 18 months of age. Um, he had the whole full-blown febrile seizure and stopped talking and for several years, you know, my husband at the time, then we took him to speech therapists and speech pathologists and hearing specialists and just trotted us, you know, trotted him around from practitioner to practitioner without any success. And one night, I don't even know how, I think on the internet, and this was like when we had to dial up Acer computer, um, you know, I, I stumbled across something called EFT, the emotional freedom techniques. And it looked really interesting. And I thought, okay, let's try this with my, our son. So we ordered the, at what at the time was, you know, video cassettes, <laughs> we ordered the video cassettes and watched the video cassettes. And basically this was a meridian based acupressure tapping technique. And we started using it on our son and coincidentally or not, because, you know, it was anecdotal, as you talked about, we talked about anecdotal the other day, it was an anecdotal experience, but it was an anecdotal experience that, that really within two weeks of tapping with our son, 
he went from not speaking and screaming all the time because he was frustrated to speaking in full sentences. He sat down at the dinner table one night and said, I'd like some pie, please. (laughs) And so that got my attention. And I started to study energy psychology. I had already been a life coach. I was actually one of the first life coaches trained by Thomas Leonard way back in 1997, I think, before he passed. He's oftentimes considered the father of life coaching. And sort of as I learned about EFT and, and I learned about the tapping and other energy psychology techniques and coaching and other personality assessment techniques that I use, one, one in particular called human design, I decided that I wanted to start talking to people and sharing, having, creating a platform where people could learn about other options, that there were other options out there and, you know, getting access to information was hard. And when I learned EFT, and that's, that's the tapping, the EFT is uh, you tap on basically these acupuncture points, but with your fingers, when I started using EFT in my practice, and this was in the early 2000s. It was considered to be dangerous and basically illegal to use it. There were several psychologists who actually had their licenses revoked for using it. For for tapping? For tapping. It was considered inappropriate touching. Now, the thing that's interesting, and this is what, 23 years later, we now actually have a pretty strong body of scientific data that's beginning to show very clearly that Tapping on these acupuncture points, which you know are actually now discoverable points, we know that acupuncture points are actually places where there's actually more blood flow. They're energetic and informational points on the body. When you tap on oh. these points, you can decrease stress, you decrease, you increase cortisol, you actually can upregulate certain genes. I mean, it's a powerful, powerful tool. But in the beginning, and it's oh. a great tool to one, work on. One phobia. quick uh... before we continue. I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Uh-huh. Yeah, one quick story for you is um, there was a scientific article where they looked at rats, you know, rat mothers that took care of their pups and the rats that licked their pups a lot more, the pups are more well-adjusted and less skittish and less afraid. And then I thought about, you know, if you do acupuncture on a point or acupressure on a point or tap on a point, they're still not all the same, but a lot of the same points. So why does it make sense for you know, to either poke a needle in or tap on a point and, or pressure a point, but not tap it? So it seems to make sense that you can do multiple things on these points. Yes. And when I was in nursing school, I was part of a research study where people held babies and they measured, they measured you know, how, how beneficial was it for a baby to be held? And and so, and, and I've often said, why, why are we doing, I mean, it's nice to have that kind of research data, but that's so obvious. My grandmother could have told you that too. Right. And I don't mean to, I'm not poo-pooing science and I'm not poo-pooing research, but sometimes it's like, why do we have to have research that you touch on this point and it helps people. 
And certainly, you know, why would you lose your license over trying to do a very deliberate and, and very clearly outlined protocol with someone? And so at that point in time, I gave up my nursing license because I, I, I had been tapping with clients and the, the impact of what I saw, just the, the you know, sometimes the like shockingly quick shifts that people made just from tapping was so profound. I wasn't willing to wait around for 23 years for the research studies to come out. I knew it worked and I knew it certainly wasn't hurting anyone. And I didn't want to even get caught in the crossfire of medical practice. So I rescinded, you know, gave up my license and basically and started on a career of looking at, well, what does help people create health and well-being? How do we find ways outside of the materialistic model of medicine to enhance people's well-being beyond just nutrition, even an exercise? To me, there always was something else going on with health and wellness. And a lot, and to me, the undercurrent was the narratives that people tell about who they are impact the body. Again, I didn't have any research on this at the point, at that point, I just knew that if somebody came in and talked to me and they were a life coaching client that, and they told me, Hey, you know, my shoulders are really hurting that I intuitively knew that there was probably at least an important conversation to be had about what burdens are you carrying? What's going on in your life? Are you feeling overburdened? that the body itself was a really beautiful metaphor that created an opening to conversations around not just physical health and wellness, but also emotional health and wellness. And the more I worked with different alternative techniques that I picked up along the way, the more I started to see that there were trends around well-being and language and the words and the narratives that we tell about who we are seem to affect the body. So I, back to blogging, (laughs) I started, uh, I started- If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. One quick question, if you don't mind. So you said the words and feelings about what you tell yourself modulates your health. Does that mean if I say, I'm just getting old, that's why I have a frozen shoulder or whatever it may be. What does that do to you? And what else could you say instead? Like, What have you learned from your experience that would help? So what I have learned from my experience, and and I'm actually in the middle of, of doing my PhD research, which has been a little bit slow and going with COVID, but what I've learned is that the language that we use impacts the way in which our body responds. So for example, if you have a story that you tell about yourself or an experience in your life, and you, you repeat that story, you identify with that story. So let's say you had a really nasty divorce with, with your, your ex-wife and you still struggle with feeling benevolent towards them. And you're always reciting that story of your divorce and how your ex-partner screwed you over. And that becomes kind of the mantra that you use anytime you introduce yourself to someone new, anytime you think about your life, maybe you're a little bitter about it. When we look at research, if we look at IgG and IgE response, which is immune response, your retelling of that story and your memory of events that happened actually can influence your IgG and IgE response negatively. It decreases your immune response. And so language and the stories we tell and the identities that we craft as part of these stories actually influence immune, our immune response. And that when we use high quality, high frequency language, when we're telling good stories about ourselves and we've done the inner work to believe those stories, that's also part of it. Although you can start first by lying to yourself and telling yourself a better story. You know, when we clean all of that up, then we start to create 
higher states of wellness, higher states of immunity. We value ourselves more. And even just shifting your sense of self-worth inspires you to take more sustainable actions towards increasing well-being. You eat better. You, you, you exercise more. You have a better outlook on like, we know optimists live longer than people who are pessimists. And part of that's just the narrative that they use and the stories they tell. It makes sense if you're, well, I know a lot of people think bad things of themselves if they have uh, anxiety or depression or they're just hard on themselves. And if people have stories about themselves in their head and they talk to other people about themselves, then they're going to kind of align themselves with what they've said about themselves. So as not to be uh, incongruous, I guess. So it makes sense what you're saying that this would be detrimental. Mm -hmm. It also, you know, the brain can only process so much information at one point in time. And so when we're telling these tape loop narratives, basically the other thing that happens is we start to program the brain to look for evidence in our world that meets our story. So, you know, it kind of becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy in terms of how we perceive our world. And of course that reinforces the narrative and it just keeps it going. Yeah, it makes sense. Well, I, I'm sorry, I keep interrupting your bio, but <laughs> I had a lot of really interesting experiences and I think the audience is learning as we go. So if you don't mind, continue with the uh, the blog type material. Uh, okay, blog, blog talk radio. <laughs> so so uh, at a certain point in time, because I was very entrenched in what was the alternative medicine or holistic medicine community, which at that, again, that's the early, we're talking early 2000s. It definitely didn't have the same traction that it has today. Um, and there were a lot of people out there doing a lot of interesting leading edge, either research or at least trying leading edge kinds of things. And I wanted to give people access to that information as quickly and as, as easily as possible. I mean, I knew as a mother that if you go through three years and your son is screaming and frustrated and can't talk and you can't access them, you know, you didn't want to wait around for, again, 15, 20 years of research. You were ready to try something to see if you could have a breakthrough and people needed information. So I started interviewing different thought leaders, different alternative healthcare practitioners. It sort of was the beginning of many, many variations of podcasting along the way. So that was the origins of it. The, the podcast, I keep saying we're in our fifth season, but we're actually in our seventh season. We tend to interview a lot of quantum physicists. This past season, we've interviewed people who've been reframing the conversation around genetics and how genes work, how water works in the body. We interviewed, I think one of my favorite interviews, we interviewed Avi Loeb, who is the Harvard astrophysicist who basically came out and said the spatial, the, the celestial body, Umuamua, who was, that was floating in the sky a mm. couple of years ago, might actually be evidence that there are alien intelligences flying spaceships around in our atmosphere. That's, that's not what he would say. That's a, a Main Street interpretation. So he you wrote know, a book it, about it. I, he I, did. I he he wrote a great book about it. And, he, you know, he's a, he's a really interesting person. And I think, you know, part of what has been really interesting in the last few years, especially on the on the Quantum Revolution podcast, is that we have been talking to a lot of scientists who have been talking about how the system of science itself or the system of funding science itself is broken. And that that struggle with the system, that struggle to get access to funding, that struggle to be kind of confined to having to say the, you know, report that your results were within expectations and not be able to get out of the box, even though the evidence really indicates otherwise, really hampers real science and really hampers our ability to really ask good questions about how we can shift our understanding of the world. And 
you know, I think that conversation is probably more important than the conversations we've been having about what people have discovered. The fact that I think I've had, you know, some incredibly respectable scientists as guests, researchers at Harvard, researchers at the University of Washington who are doing really mind-blowing work and are having the courage to speak out and talk about what they're doing. Some of them are getting death threats, literally. And, you know, I have, I have one scientist that I interviewed who's hiding I won't tell you where she's hiding, but she's hiding because she came out with different interpretation of how DNA works and literally a pharmaceutical company came after her and threatened her. And this is a really terrifying thing to me because we're basically controlling information, which is why I think I love podcasting so much because it's a workaround, you know, of, you know, provided you're not, obviously I don't have enough notoriety for it to be a problem for Spotify, but I, you know, it's a good way to disseminate information faster than I think any other modality. It's faster than publishing. It's faster than anything out there. And I think at a time when we are really needing to find solutions to challenges quickly, and we're needing to stay curious because we keep finding problems and solutions out of the same box, that if we don't know we're not staying open-minded enough to actually engage in real science and stay curious, I think we're going to be in trouble. We are in trouble. I think we're already in trouble. Yeah, no, it's true. Well, one good thing about podcasting is you can put your podcast on dozens of channels. Mm -hmm. Some of them claim to be, you know, avoiding censorship. So that's a way for some podcasters to, you know, diversify where they put their podcast, not just, let's say, on one platform. So if anything happens, they could still get listeners. They could still point people to the podcast. Absolutely. And, you know, and I think the thing is, it's a tricky line. It's a little bit of a tricky line because I do think as a, as a podcast host, you want to curate and make sure that, especially if you're talking about science, whoever you are presenting, and you do this too, you know, has a certain amount of credibility. And I think that credibility, meaning they're operating in integrity, they've got good intent. They're not biased because I think science is sort of designed to be implicitly, at least in theory, somewhat unbiased. And you also want to keep the stream of information open for people to make their own choices. And certainly, I think on in the bigger scheme of things, I don't just have a podcast. I own a publishing company and my publishing company has been approached now twice by big publishing companies because big publishing companies gobble up little publishing companies. And I'll never sell it simply because at the time that we're at on the planet and the time, I think, in the information war that we're in or the truth war that we've been in in the last few years, I think that to maintain a healthy democracy, we have to have healthy streams of information that are not regulated and owned by large corporate conglomerates. And you know, we have to be able to not only stay independent, but also we have to be able to, as you just said, access those alternative channels so that if we ever do get into a state where the information, the dissemination of information and inspiration, I, I want to say it's not just information. I think we're almost at the edge of the age of information and moving into the age of inspiration. I think we need both. But those streams have to stay open and unfettered a, as much as possible in a time when people need to be able to access what they need to know when they need to know it. Have you seen any uh, collective action from multiple scientists to get through censorship or, you know, are these people kind of alone, separated and have less power because it's just one here, one there, and they're being attacked separately? I actually think there's a revolution at hand. 
And while I would say, I, I definitely have talked to a couple of people who, as I said, I have one person who is literally in hiding. I actually think that there's murmuring afoot in the scientific community and people are starting to recognize, hey, this we need to start coming together and being honest with each other. And, and we need to start looking at alternative ways of funding our research. And certainly there are several of the people I've spoken to have been very creative in, in finding their own source of scientific research money. And that alternative source is very liberating for the scientific process. And I think that I think that the community as a whole, most people in the community are really aware that there's a problem. And I would certainly say I've talked to a lot of scientists who are in their 70s and 80s who are really kind of like, I have nothing left to lose. I'm going to talk about this. And it's pretty that that those revelations and that honesty um, really, I think, clearly says to me that that they are talking at, at cocktail parties. They're secretly in corners talking about how do we get out of this machine? Um, and I think as more and more scientists are really starting to say we, we can't do this anymore, I think alternative sources will continue to reveal themselves. There are definitely people who are wanting to fund things without the influence of, say, the NIH and some of these other uh, you know, organizations and governmental bodies that we know that the conversations we've been having about cancer, for example, haven't really changed much in 40 or 50 years, and that you know, we need new science beyond cutting off body parts and poisoning people because there has, we're not asking the right questions if we can't get to different, you know, to those answers. And of course, some of that funding for cancer research comes from pharmaceutical companies who have huge skin in the game in terms of the outcome. And so, you know, continuing, I think, to explore and support scientists or explore and support, you know, humanity in cultivating ways to finance unbiased science is essential. How have you seen that this has shaped people's research that aren't necessarily fighting against it 100%, but are kind of grumbling and going along with it and shaping and changing their research to suit what, let's say, NIH wants? Like, Do you have any um, observations or stories from people on how it's affected their research? You know, honestly, I don't seek those people out. <laughs> I don't go find them. But I, so I don't really know how to answer that question other than saying that the people who I have been talking to certainly, I think, have reported to me that other scientists definitely feel like their hands are tied and that there's nothing that they can do. They have to play the game. And, you know, that's not a sustainable game at a certain point. And, and even, you know, whether the research isn't sustainable or the structure isn't sustainable, I would say on a very personal level, it's not sustainable for the scientists themselves. It's not, you know, going back to my work, it's not healthy. To, to fudge the data or to interpret the data in a rigid way because you're afraid about money. And, you know, I don't talk to a lot of people who are in that game. I, people who I tend to interview are sort of outside of that game looking in. I suspect, you know, again, just from the conversations that I've had and even some of the, you know, when the mic is off conversations that I've had, that there are big conversations happening. I'll tell you the second conversation that I've heard happening, which I also think is interesting, especially because I've also interviewed a lot of quantum physicists, there are a lot of scientists who are sort of begrudgingly admitting that some of their inspiration for their research is sort of serendipitous and magical and that they get you know weird voices in their heads at night that tell them to go go look at this and they don't really know where that's coming from either and they're terrified to talk about that too so i think that's also kind of an interesting 
that's something I tend to be personally kind of curious about, like, where do you get your ideas? <laughs> and, you know, and, and there are a lot of, I have encountered several scientists who have talked about, you know, they're, they have creative practices and they have spiritual practices. And a lot of those insights that they have that bore out well in the lab came from, you know, divine whisperings, if you want to call it that, or, or inspirations. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. Any other um, anecdotes on super interesting guests that you've spoken to or guests that, you know, gave you ideas that help you change your life or your family's life? Well, I'll tell you one of the, one of my favorite guests actually came, it sort of came through a roundabout way, interviewed Veda Austin, who is a water researcher. And she's not really technically a scientist, though she has some scientific data, but the emotional discoveries that she made around water and the consciousness of water was so profoundly beautiful. She decided to make it more of a heart offering than a scientific offering, not that they're mutually exclusive. She has worked with Gerald, Dr. Gerald Pollack, who is more of the scientist. I've interviewed them both. Dr. Gerald Pollack works out of a lab at the University of Washington in Seattle, but she basically has done work with the crystalline structure of water which is also the work that Gerald Pollack does. So Gerald Pollack does the more scientific piece. She does the more pretty parts. And basically she's done a whole series. She has a book called The Secret, what is it called? The Secret Intelligence on Water. And basically she's done consciousness experiments with water. So she's whispered words to water and then looked at how the the water crystallizes in response to language, how water crystallizes in response to thoughts. She's placed water over photographs and then crystallized the water and the water duplicates the photograph in its crystalline structure. And it just really, I'm not even sure why it moved me so much. Her pictures and her words and her story just had such a profound impact on me, just in terms of being in awe of the world and in perhaps the mysteries that we just absolutely don't even have the beginning understandings of yet. And certainly I just don't see water the same way at all anymore. I, every time I see water in a pitcher or in a cup, I talk to it and I'm, I'm like, thank you, water. I feel like water is alive. And my husband thinks it's completely weird, but, but my 12 year old and I are very much into water and water being alive. So. Well, what, what have you noticed when you talk to water? Do you see anything happening or do you feel better if you drink it? You know, I don't know. <laughs> I would say, you know, the research that she's done is on crystalline structure. So it involves freezing water and I don't like water that's cold to drink. So in that respect, I, I don't know if it's actually holding its structure up, but I suspect it is. I would say I probably don't notice that I feel any better necessarily. I will say that I'm in so much of how beautiful and how mysterious the world is. I really do think that all of these conversations that I've had over the years have really helped me cultivate a mindset of just embracing the idea that we don't know way more than we do. And that's, to me, that's personally, first of all, exciting because it makes me know that I'm going to live a really long life because I have a lot of things to investigate still. And secondly, for me personally, it just makes me think that there's some kind of intelligence behind this whole show. And whether you want to call it God or whether you want to call it whatever you want to call it, you know, I just call it the mystery. And I think the mystery is really awesome. And it, it, it keeps me hopeful, even when I read the news that maybe there's more happening here than what meets the eye and what's happening on the surface. And that there is some kind of an order to all of this. And that in the end, it's all going to be okay. What's your plan for future podcasts? Are there series that you want to do? Or where do you want to take it? That's a good one. The last season we talked about 
science and creativity. And we explored a lot about how does creativity play into play into scientific research. I think in the next season, I, I kind of want to explore something that I, I don't know how it's going to work, but I really want to explore what do scientists think about when they think about the future? What do they imagine? And are they imagining that there's data is working towards some kind of bigger vision? So I may be, it may be a weird season where I interview scientists about what is your dream? Because I think, I think, you know, why do people, I'm always interested in why do people go into science in the first place? Because we always think science is this cold sort of, you know, Spock kind of thing. And people go and they want to interpret data and they spend their whole lifetime interpreting data. And I actually find that scientists as a group, even though they're sort of trained to interpret data as a very specified way, that as a group, they're, it's like science became the place where they could legitimately and for money translate their curiosity about the world into some kind of a job. And I think, you know, anybody that has any kind of connection to curiosity is probably always wondering, where are we headed? Why am I doing this? What's next? What, what does this mean? How does this fit into the, how does this little piece of data fit into the bigger picture? And I, I'm curious to know, like, what do people really think is going on? And where do scientists really think we're headed beyond the data? Because I think there are a lot of scientists out there who are hopeful. And we don't ever hear that part of science. I think we hear a lot of doom and gloom coming from science. And I want to know what what are their hopes for the world? And what do they think we need to do to get there? Have you gotten any interesting answers to that question? That's a good question, by the way. <laughs> well, I, I have to go back to Avi Loeb, who is the astrophysicist from Harvard, who talked about you know, life from other planets. And um, you know, I think he was he's the ultimate curious scientist that I've talked to so far. I mean, he's definitely sees science as an extension of his childhood contemplations out in the field. And I think, you know, he thinks we're headed somewhere that maybe is beyond where we're at on the planet, that maybe we're part, we're just a small part of something much bigger that we just haven't realized yet. And that if, you know, other worlds can come here, then maybe we can explore other worlds. And that we're just at the beginning of an expansion and not at the end. I like that perspective a lot. Yeah, that's excellent. So what's, um, you know, we're coming close to that at a time. What's your future look like? What do you want to work on in the near future and, you know, make happen? For me in the future, I, because now that COVID is sort of falling by the wayside and some of the regulations around doing my own research is opening up, I would really like to finish my own research on looking at the impact of language on DNA and, you know, sort of hand in hand with that, I would like to start a movement about how we talk to each other and how we can better use language to not only heal ourselves and our own sense of value, but I think how we can better use language to lift each other up to. And that I know it sounds really light and, fl- and floofy and, and, <laughs> and sort of somewhat happy-go-lucky, but I am so appalled at how we have used language to put each other to sleep and or slice each other apart in the last I don't know, in a while. And, you know, I think that if we can get back to understanding that the words you use literally can change someone's DNA or can change your own DNA, and that the words are actually more powerful than swords in some cases, and maybe we should become much more responsible about how we use language as a template for the world we want to build. 
Well, very good, uh, Karen. So tell listeners where they can find your podcast and where they could find out more about you. So thank you. Uh, my podcast is quantumrevolutionpodcast.com. That's probably the easiest place to find it, but you can find it on all the many podcast outlets that there are out there. And you can learn more about the work that I do on my website, quantumalignmentsystem.com. Excellent. Well, Karen, thanks for coming. It's been a good call. I appreciate it. Thank you, Rich. I appreciate it. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.